Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Well, hello and welcome along to another episode of Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. Welcome back if you are a regular or sporadic listener and welcome along if you are listening to us for the first time. We love when we hear about new people uh, discovering the podcast. So thank you very much indeed for taking the time to listen to it. Um, shout out to Jez Garrett, actually, on Twitter, who um, kind of following on from a thread of people talking about the creator and how brilliant it was. Uh, really enthused about our episode with Gareth Edwards back on episode 389. So I really appreciate uh, your words, which were very kind. And uh, one of his favourite episodes is one of the Edgar Wright episodes. So thank you very much indeed, Jez. We appreciate even if from you tweeting one new person joins us on the podcast. So thank you very much indeed. Our latest guest on Soundtracking, you may have heard me talk about this over the last couple of weeks, um, about this film 20 Days in Mariupol, which came out in cinemas on Friday just past selected cinemas. I know this is going to be um, a little bit of an effort for people to see the film and also to, I guess, deal with um, how you feel post the film as well. But it's one of those things, if you invest in it and you take the time to watch it, you're doing a lot of good. I'm so grateful that I'm able to talk about 20 Days in Mariupol on this podcast because our guest has scored this film and it's a film that's profoundly affected me more than anything I've seen in recent years, uh, such as the gravity of the subject matter. So 20 Days in Mariupol is, it's harrowing, but it's also genuinely necessary and a very important documentary charting in quite heart-wrenching fashion the besieging of the Ukrainian city during the Russian invasion. So I was lucky enough to speak to composer of the score, Jordan Dykstra, about his music for the film. And this actually happened quite a few months back. Um, At the time, we didn't really know when the film was going to be, if and when, and who was going to distribute the film. But I'm so glad that the film is out there now for people to see. So we're going to begin with one of Jordan's cues, News finally gets out. good thanks how are you doing good doing good yeah can you hear me okay i can hear you loud and clear it's so good you're a pro you've got a mic and everything it's great. i love it it's such a pleasure to have you on to not just talk about your career and your creativity but in particular 20 days in mariupol which man i don't think i've been what's the word i'm looking for uh, affected by a film in in such a way for such a long time and I kind of the first thing that I wanted to do was to almost kind of try in some way, have it kind of instilled in curriculum in a way so that everybody watched it, because I think it is such a hard but important piece of filmmaking and storytelling. And I think that, I don't know, we we easily shy away from putting ourselves in those positions. 
to watch something as truthful and as heartbreaking as this film, but it's so needed and important. Do you mind talking about how you got to to work with Mr. Slav and, and work on this film and, and that relationship and where and when you got involved with the film? Yeah, it is a tough one to watch. Something that I've realized while listening to uh, Mr. Slav talk about his children and what he wants to be able to tell his children when they grow up and ask about the war is that, you know, he wants to be able to tell them that he did something and this is what he made and this is how he tried to help. And I realized the other day at the premiere in, in at Film Forum here in New York that this will be something that they see. They'll watch mm-hmm. this film when they're ready. And I think a lot of a lot of people will in the years going forward just because it'll be such a, an important historical document. That made me really grateful to be able to work on it and and also grateful to tell these stories that are really needed to to the world for the world yeah. to hear you know the, the the search for truth in the world is something that i think that we are more and more getting into a cloudy environment and so when films like this come along where there's there's no escaping the the truth that you're seeing on screen are more important than ever i think I couldn't agree more. And I really appreciate the the work that AAP does with Frontline and they make these very uh, well-researched uh, in-depth documentaries that I think do a really good job of not getting in the way of the truth and being objective with it. We we do we do see Mrs. Loft deal with some of the emotions as a journalist, but I think we tried really hard not to frame or push any emotion that wasn't already there. Um, yeah. to guide the viewer in any way yeah where did how did you come to be involved with the film what you know was the film what was the what was the state of the film in terms of when you came on board and what were the conversations that you had with regards yeah. to you know how your music could complement and be as important an important part of this this story because it covers so many you know if you think about putting film in genres this is obviously a documentary but within it it's a horror film it's a drama there are so many sort of genres that float around this particular film when you think of it in that side of things. And when you came to thinking about the music, I was interested to find out what the conversations you had with Mr. Slav about what he saw and, you know, working, collaborating together on that. It was sort of a dream scenario. I had worked on a number of documentaries with the editor and producer, uh, Michelle Manzer. And by the time they contacted me, they had a full assembly and they had put my music in there as editing, temp. like temp music. Yeah. yeah, as temp. And they had, but they, the thing that they did, which was really fascinating and, and really enjoyable for me, is that they took a bunch of my more chamber music, more experimental music that a lot of editors don't pick some more avant-garde things and and microtonal pieces and stuff like that. And they put, they layered them and they put them in this very strange visceral edit that I, I was shocked by. And I was very, I was very um, tickled too, because it was, I'd never thought that this like just intonation plucked piano drone piece would be, would act as like a, a flatlining sort of motif that we hear three or four times in the film. And yeah. I, I yeah stuff like that I was just I was just shocked and they had almost a full edit by the time they came to me and then we as soon as we found out we got into Sundance we just refined everything for a month or two
I don't know. Did you have a, an idea in terms of that 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 wonderful, I guess, wonderful experience of of people being inspired creatively by your music and it having that lovely full circle in a way, you know, in terms of of what it does for the film and things as well. Did you go off and write some other pieces and things around that, or, or was it, you know, talk to me a little bit about the kind of journey of, you know, of that initial kind of hearing your your music there is temp and what we end up hearing in the film because it's so powerful. Yeah, there was a lot of of new pieces written, um, a lot of new motifs, and especially a lot of drums and programming and stuff like that that was added. Um, a bunch of the music wasn't mine and needed to be replaced, of course, but yeah. it was a good guideline. And they had this palette that was, whether it was mine or someone else's, it was, it was a very interesting palette of like a ton of noise and sort of like this low key dread that just kind of is playing throughout whether it's these the sounds these rolling bass mimicking like um like a, a tank kind of rolling around yeah. in the back like maybe you can't mm. see it but it's behind a building or something um there's like shivers of 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 terror and and fear and so it was it was very it was very good um already and i was you know w- when it's already working it makes my job so much easier, you know, because <laughs> then I can, then I, the vision is very clear and we just have to find the right timbre and instruments and stuff like that. Yeah. Did Mr. Slav have a, a specific kind of ideas of what he wanted and what he didn't want as well in terms of moving forward with the, you know, the final kind of sound of it? Yeah, he was against some traditional instruments like piano, but he was really he was really into things that he used, kept using the word windy. He wanted things to be more windy or <laughs> industrial because yeah. Mariupol is a very industrial city. It's not touristy kind of place. It's it's I think it's known for its industry. Yeah. And all, all these factories. And he wanted when we when we see some of the um, horrible shots of these buildings just crumbled or, or blown out by shells. He wanted us to hear and feel the wind going through these windows that are gone. Right. That where it shouldn't be, but it is. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of this wow. sort of presence that is like warbling and, and unsteady and uncertain and unresolved.
It's so clever. It, it is such a clever edit as well in the way that the film kind of, you know, it's almost like bookended by these, this scene of the tank with the buses and the Z on the tank. And even this, it's something that kind of almost makes you hold your breath immediately at that sight of the kind of tank just pushing this bus out the way. You know, we've seen images of war and but there's something, I don't know why, it just, it kind of really just sort of made me stop in my tracks kind of immediately. And I was in, I was there and I was, you know, I, I needed to watch the story and, you know, I had to stop a few times just because I was, I was in bits with things. When you watched it for the first time as well, I imagine it must have been incredibly difficult to, to remove your personal emotional reaction to it you know, in terms of, of maybe just watching it for, for and then kind of going, well, actually, I've got to work on this. And almost it's two separate things in a way. Is it easy or was it hard to do that? It was really tough at the beginning and it was still really hard even at the end. Yeah. And I don't think I can see the film anymore. It, it's, it's just too much. I know it by heart and I know everything that's going to happen and I still weep every time I watch it. And I've seen it dozens and dozens of times. Um, in some scenes, you know, of course, hundreds of times. But yeah, yeah, it was really, really hard. Um, just focusing on the music helped a lot. Li- just listening instead of seeing sometimes yeah. helped a lot. And and uh, but yeah, it was it was tough. It was really tough. And yeah. they did, but they they did a really good job, I think, making it into a sort of an immersive doc where you're right alongside Mrs. Slav, and yeah. him talking in the first person really helps kind of like give you someone to you can like cling onto his arm as he's like guiding you through because without without that I think it would just be too too much and no one would get through the first 10 minutes it's his people it's his town it's his you know it's that's the thing is kind of like he knows he knows this place he knows these buildings he knows the communities and so he's yeah like you're 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 absolutely there with him right through it and and also just in terms of his delivery as well, that couldn't have been easy for him, you know, in terms of to to voice that, to write that, to relive it in a way as well. But it's just the right, it feels like such the right tone with it all. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I th- I'm pretty sure he he uh, he recorded the first draft of the voiceover while he was still in Ukraine on his iPhone. God. And then they just re-recorded it uh, later on. But yeah, he was he was working really really hard to keep it fresh and relatable to the to the moment he was in. We've you've all created something you know incredibly powerful and 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 just important as like what I said earlier. But I'd love to talk a little bit more about you know about you and your work and the other. You know you you mentioned a few things there with regards to you know your your chamber music and be lovely for our listeners to get a, a bit of an understanding about your journey and and. And what that's been and and that move into, you know, you've worked on so many different uh, types of productions, you know, as well, in terms of bringing your music to to a visual element. But how old were you? When did you start? Where did music begin for you? Oh, when I was very, very young, my my parents had uh, their children, my siblings and I all start on violin when we were four. And yeah, we all played. I have three siblings. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we all played in our hometown in Iowa. And, you know, my my parents got that picture of us all four holding the violin, you know, <laughs> the portrait in their yeah. living room, of course. And uh, and in that sense, it's very typical background, classically trained. And then I moved to viola later on when I was 13 or 14. Um, I think why? My, 
I was really tired of playing violin and I, <laughs> but my parents were like, you have to still, you have to play something. And I was like, well, I'll play guitar and drums, which I was doing too. And, and they're like, oh, no, but maybe you can try viola. And that was around the time my voice was changing. Mm -hmm. And so the viola was, and I was growing, the viola was a little bit bigger and lower, like alto tenor clef and like range. And it just like clicked right away. And I could sort of it was around the time I was developing much more musically and I could sing better with the viola than the violin and so I think that's that's one thing that really made a big impact on on me going forward yeah. and was the idea always that you know that, that at some point you would you would compose and and then you know compose for the moving image so to speak as part of your storytelling I never really thought of myself as a composer until I went to to university yeah I mean, I thinking back now, I feel like I I started composing by improvising, and I I really hated theory when I was young, <laughs> yeah. and I most I would kids listen, do. <laughs> yeah, because I I didn't really play the piano. I I was training myself by ear. I could read music, but I could hear things and memorize things very, very well. And my brothers, my old two older brothers, were playing these pieces that I would was going to play later on, they were a little bit ahead of me, right? And so I would like get to my lesson and I would play the part that I could read. And then I could, I would just improvise the part that I had from memory for my brothers. And my teacher after I finished would say like, that was very nice. That's not what's on the page, but that was very nice. <laughs> You were destined for I it, Jordan. Caught. You were destined. Yeah. <laughs> experiment and creativity that's what it's all about like don't exactly. follow the rules but improvising does does go along with composing for me every time always yeah, yeah it's very important to my practice I know that you moved to Portland as well which I've been lucky enough to to, to go to a couple of times and stuff and I don't know I, I, it's interesting talking to people as well about how kind of you know environments and locations can really inspire it as well and you find your you find a, you know, a, a community or you find your tribe and you find people that inspire you or encourage you or push you outside your comfort zone. Was Portland anything of those for you? 100%. Yeah. That's where I really feel like felt I grew up. I spent most of my 20s there and I was very lucky to get there at a time when it was very affordable and there was a lot of amazing art. And I was dropped into a, a friend group that was full of artists, visual artists, musicians, composers people doing curation and all kinds of wonderful things. And I was working at a, a music label called Marriage Records, and I was surrounded by bands and mm. artists that I was just, I, it was a dream come true. That's how I got connected with the Dirty Projectors and other friends like um, Yacht and uh, Lucky Dragons and Thanksgiving and White Rainbow and stuff like that. Yeah, bands that that I really also just was a big fan of. And I was working on their music, making, helping to make their records and produce their records and distribute their records. And it was a, it was pure, pure joy. It was, mm. we all lived in a, a weird warehouse that was sort of like a Chelsea hotel for me. Wow. And, um, it was great. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I really There's a film in there. There's a yeah. film in there somewhere. Someone needs to write a screenplay about that. When the when the strike's finished, someone needs to write that for sure. Yes, yes. And um, I mean, I imagine part of that that whole creative environment as well. There was no, you know, there weren't clear lines between everyone's roles as well when it came to creating. So, writing for for image was it something that you were, you were doing kind of back then in terms of that kind of 
I guess, the early starts of going, when you become a film composer or a TV composer, you know, in terms of that sort of thing, it's it's kind of nice when the lines aren't crystal clear between, so you get to fluctuate between different things. But is that where that started for you, do you think, as well? In a way, yes. In, and in another way, no, because I when I was when I was younger, I always thought the best role for me would be like a mu- music supervisor kind of role. I always imagined these these scores and, and soundtracks that were I, I felt like I could make a pastiche of, of different sort of elements and fell in love with some scores by like music supervision by Robbie Robertson and stuff and yeah. people like that. Yeah. 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 I remember you did, the first you've done time. some of that as well, haven't you? You've done music supervising and you, you, you went into that. We've done a bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. A bit done a bit of consulting in that, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it would be something I would love to do more, but when I was in Portland, I was just playing, I was just performing it solo. I was playing live four or five times a, a month and I would often put projections behind me and I would hmm. play with almost anyone and all kinds of music. But my own music uh, performance was was largely like electronic drone music um, with effects, playing viola through guitar pedals and stuff like that. What was that first opportunity you had then to to compose for for film? Strangely enough, I, I didn't see it coming. I was um, a, a friend asked me out of the blue when I was living in Portland, a friend asked me my height. I said, okay, well, here's here's my height. He said, can you send a picture of her? Would you like to be a stand-in for Henry Hopper, Dennis Hopper's son, in this Gus Van Sant film that's shooting in Portland next week? And I thought that was an interesting proposition, and it worked out. And I was on set with Henry and Gus and uh, the cinematographer Harry Sfades for like three weeks straight, uh, figuring out the lighting before the character came on. And then, you know, we talked a lot, Gus and I talked a lot, and then one day we were filming the scene for a funeral a funeral scene and he said oh i usually like to put myself in cameos for my films but maybe you'd like to do it do you do you not you want to play this it was he had a mellotron in mm-hmm. the where the organist was going to play and so they just they like got me a scarf and they put this did a quick makeup and i just like improvised this arpeggiated sort of melody on the mellotron and i think it was probably like 3 or 4 minutes long and then just everyone like burst out clap, clapping when they cut. I was like, I didn't know why I just got lost in it. They used it in the film. And that was sort of the first time I, you know, used that improvisation that I was talking about. Yeah. That that just got lucky the right time at the in the right place to to get into this film. And later, uh, Danny Elfman connected the the actual score to me playing live on camera. And so we like co-composed this wow you know I was just super lucky yeah but was that a kind of like you know someone someone being inspired by by watching you you know kind of you know it's that again it's that sort of full circle almost like you're you're in the moment of this this thing and you feel this is what you feel like you want to play someone's inspired by that did it give you that kind of going oh this is this could be fun this could be a this world could be an interesting thing to explore because you know it's the thing that I do but I can also Try that you know was it was that the kind of I don't know moment where you were like yeah why not? It was definitely a moment where I felt incredibly lucky and I wanted to pursue this, but I didn't really know how. Mm. And I knew some people who were in the industry, but it wasn't something that I 
really understood how to get into it seemed so far away and mm-hmm. so for the next five or ten years i really just focused on chamber music what writing for instruments that i a lot of the time that i didn't know how to play which was very really very lucky to be able to do i don't know is, is that part of the kind of the the, the rush of, of is learning is, is it, it always being a learning thing of there always being going into something and and wanting to either learn a new instrument or discover something new is that part of the appeal of of that like improvisation and collaboration and creativity within it definitely and i think one of the big things is the person playing too i really love collaborating and playing and improvising together with friends and people that i know have a certain strength or certain a certain impetus for their own where they're coming to the music from and that that was incredibly inspiring. And I, I really still to this day really love writing music for specific people rather than just making something in the morning just to wake up or something. You know, I like writing for people rather than instruments. You know, in terms of when you look at you, I mean, you look at the kind of the productions that you've you've worked across. And I think that, you know, 20 Days of Mario Paul as well, the way that the music navigates this this film and this story is just extraordinary. What has this experience you know, we talk about learning as we go through. What is that this experience kind of taught you about as you move forward within this world of film composing? This was a tough one because it was it, it was during, you know, it was all remote. Yeah. Mislav was in Europe. Um, the editor was in Boston. I'm here in, in New York, which is sort of like the new norm in a lot of ways. Even though I lived in L.A. for seven or eight years, I really started to write music for for media when I was in Connecticut and then now in New York. It, it, it doesn't seem like a place is necessary to to work on projects even all around the world. And I yeah. find that I find that really inspiring. I really enjoy being able to connect with different different people in different countries and, and to work on a, a great variety of things that I find inspiring. It's, it's sure so interesting. Your question, no, right? you have actually, because it's, it is also that thing as well of, of you know, post COVID. Will we ever not mention that word ever in our conversations? <laughs> for like, what, what will the time come where it becomes irrelevant to anything? But it has shifted so many things in the creative landscape. I, I probably would not have been able to have the opportunity to speak to you pre COVID, you know, in terms of right. the amount of composers that I've sought to get on this podcast pre COVID never happened and just because of the way that we work now with zoom and things it's like it's so wonderful it opens so much up we're lucky enough to have trent reznor atticus ross on talking about um mank and about how that entire score mm-hmm. was recorded by each musician individually kind of thing i mean that blew my mind you know that idea kind of thing it's like when you think of how many musicians were involved in that and how it's how great it sounds and stuff as well that was but incredible. I do, yeah, but but I think it's it's so true of that idea of going, is it will we ever get back to that kind of everybody always being in a room together? And there is something special about that energy that you feel in a room, even if it's just you and one other person or you and another musician, whatever that is, it's kind of you can't as much as people have done amazing jobs, you can't replicate that physical feeling that you get from being in the same room as someone, whether that be for a meeting or to compose or to record. Do you agree? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I, I was very lucky to be able to record 
with my group Ordinary Affex just last week here in, at the Dominion Center. It's mm-hmm. it was a, a quartet or a quintet actually, and it was wonderful to be able to work with some of my best friends and some of the finest musicians that I know in a room. I remember the first time I heard a live music after the long stretch at the beginning of you know first year or two of COVID. Yeah, and I was I was very lucky to hear a string quartet of mine played live and we're all wearing masks and and distancing and everything but to hear the bow on the string in this space was something I hadn't heard in so long Mm. and it just there's the vibrations in the air and the time passing and the the energy between the players is is just really it's something that you will never get from from virtual instruments, you know, that imp- yeah. those imperfections, that the noise yeah. of the the rosin, the birds, the wind, the people in their chair, the energy of someone <sighs> being alert or sleeping, you know, like, yeah, this is really what I really love about chamber music that I keep separate from film because I'm very interested in that sense for live performance with the the relationship the performers have to each other and the space and the audience and all that. Yeah. My first experience of live music I, like you're talking about was weirdly I was at I, I don't know if you've ever, if you've been to London but the Royal Albert Hall which is this huge extraordinary sure. round building and we have this thing called the the proms that goes on here in the UK mm. BBC proms and I had been asked to come and co-host an event with Laura Marling and the Twelve Ensemble and it was just her and these musicians on stage no audience wow. and me and Susie Klein who was the co-host Wild. and I think I. I think I sobbed through about three quarters of the performance just purely because of this kind of, I hadn't had it for so long and it was my, like every hair on my body was like vibrating and just, oh my God, it was the most amazing thing ever. Also, it's like, I think the good thing about that is that it almost, I totally take it for granted or I've taken it for granted of how much live music how important it is to me, to us. And so that was something that made me go, I've got to, I've got to see more. I've got to be in a room with as much as I possibly can. So yeah, that was, and then I saw Moon at the Barbican with Clint Mansell doing the live score um, oh, with wow. Carly, Carly Paradi on the piano. Oh, it was, it was, it was like, oh, it was I wild. love that film. So yeah, you got to come to London then and come to London and do some performances for us. I can't wait. Yeah, I was just listening to it. <laughs> To a Brahms recording yesterday on the internet, my a friend Cat uh, Lamb had a, a wonderful piece performed recently there. Yeah. Oh, amazing! I'm going to go and seek that out. Is it on the um the the Brahms sort of website thing? Yeah, for I'm the next check... uh, few weeks. Great, I'm going to yeah. go and check that out. What's next? I am f- uh, finishing up a another documentary that will screen later on um, this fall. And we're getting pretty close. We got a lock and we're we're almost to the point where we're going to record some cello. It's uh, oh. it's another really, really um, harrowing topic. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems they seem to be landing in my lap. Yeah, it's about uh, the bad science behind uh, shaken baby syndrome or um, okay. head trauma for babies. Yeah. OK, it's a wow. good it's an interesting story that yeah. sort of helps shed light on this this issue that is affecting a lot of innocent people. Wow. Well, hopefully we can, you can come back and chat to us about that. That would be so great. That would be wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you for your time. 
it's yeah. really really wonderful to get the chance to chat to you and congratulations it's such it feels weird saying congratulations on 20 days of mario paul you know of, of a film of of such weight but but your music is such an important part to to that story and how it's been made and um yeah you've done a fantastic job and I'm I'm so grateful that we can talk about it and if a couple of people will watch the film after hearing us talk about it then I feel like I've done a done a good thing so yeah I really appreciate your time I really appreciate you you watching it and and not leaving the theater and and um also thank you so much for your show though it's, it's such a gift to the world oh man are you kidding it's <laughs> it's my my uh I kind of forget that it's for other people it's not just for me <laughs> have a nice chat so that's very very kind of you um and I, I I love it from the bottom of my heart I really and I learn so much with every episode so yeah I'm very grateful to uh, to you for that thank you so much Jordan no my pleasure yeah thank you so much for having me From the score to 20 Days in Mariupol, that is Desperation, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Jordan Dykstra. My huge thanks to Jordan for taking the time to talk to us. 20 Days in Mariupol is, as I've said throughout this, whenever I've talked about it, it is not an easy watch, but I really do urge you to seek it out in selected cinemas if you can. And if you're not able to get to the cinema to watch it, then uh, go online to 20, that's just the number 20, Days in Mariupol. It's M-A-R-I-U-P-O-L dot com. There's a website that can tell you about uh, screenings, where you can see it, how you can see it. So head to 20daysinmariupol.com. Also, you can head to edithbowman.com if you want to catch up with all of our previous episodes. And please do follow us on socials. We are at Soundtrack in UK and we also have a YouTube channel, which we'd love you to subscribe to. Um, next up, very excited to be talking about the brilliant Boiling Point. Some of you may have seen the film from a couple of years ago, starring the wonderful Stephen Graham. And it was this exceptional and extraordinary achievement of one shot one-shot film uh, well it's now been made into following on that story with a four-part series for the BBC they've already showed a couple of series it goes out on a Sunday night but um, we're very excited that we have uh, Philip Barantini who's the kind of creator writer and director of the film and some of the episodes and he's also joined by the two composers who walked across the film and the TV series uh, Aaron May and David Ridley so Philip Aaron and David join us for next week's soundtracking I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm -hmm.